Welcome back to The Re-Education. I'm Eli Lake. First, let me apologize for our two-week hiatus here at The Re-Education. Me and my family took a much-needed vacation on the first week of the new year. And this week, I've been engaged in a few other projects. But we're back, and we've got a great show. On today's show, my guest is Mariam Memarsadehi, a founder and director of the Cyrus Forum. And she discusses what 2023 will mean for the revolution in Iran. Meanwhile, I'm looking at how 2022 showed us that the dictatorships that seem so strong in 2020 sit atop castles made of sand. Stay tuned. This is a good one. Remember 2020, that year when we all locked down, when our schools closed the year of Zoom and Netflix? There were anti-police riots in the streets of our cities and the sitting president and as many fans didn't accept the results of the election that year that Donald Trump, of course, lost. And in China, we were getting headlines like this. China, the origin of the virus, is celebrating victory over COVID-19. Beijing is taking a victory lap as billions of people around the world continue to suffer the economic, health and social impact of the pandemic that shows no sign of subsiding. It was dispiriting on many levels. But the long-standing assumption expressed by people like Francis Fukuyama at the sunset of the Cold War at the end of the 20th century was that with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain, the only viable model for societies was the liberal democratic one in the West. And well, it left many of us to just assume that the spread of freedom could be put on autopilot as we focused on other things. Well, for some at least, 2020 was kind of a profound refutation of that Fukuyan and rosy optimism. The liberal democracies in 2020 at least were unraveling demonic illicit drugs like fentanyl and very, very strong methamphetamines. They flooded into our heartlands. And it wasn't just in America. It was in Europe. It was in what we might call the free world. The federal government had accepted that it could just pay people, I guess, not to work for months and months on end. And even though we relied more and more on others workers who kept our food supply chains going and delivered our food and, you know, continue to work on our critical infrastructure, most people, or at least people in the white-collar knowledge industries, were able to basically have a new routine where they worked from home. Then there were our institutions. Everything from the media to the presidency seemed to be losing credibility by the day. I mean, the public face of the U.S. pandemic response, Dr. Anthony Fauci, well, he insisted that the coronavirus came from a fluke in nature and not the highly sensitive biological weapons lab in the Chinese city of Wuhan, where the first cases of COVID-19 first appeared. And now it looks like, as he was saying that, he knew better. And that's just one of many examples of how institutions that were widely trusted by Americans only a few years ago have lost a lot of that trust. Just look at the FBI. And then there was China, and it seemed to have handled this virus with the kind of efficiency we could only dream about in America. I mean, the Chinese were having pool parties. Remember those? When we were attending Zoom graduations and learning how to make sourdough. And maybe, just maybe, some would say, China's hybrid of a semi-free market and authoritarian surveillance state, well, it was better equipped to meet the challenges of the 21st century than our messy, dysfunctional liberal republic. And it really wasn't just China. I mean, Russia, too, appeared at least to be playing a poor hand exceedingly well. It was still a country in decline, but at least it had shown that it could meddle in the affairs of its neighbors with little to no repercussions. I mean, remember, before this last year, Russia had annexed Crimea, a big part of Ukraine, 
to very little consequence. And, you know, when Russia a year ago prepared that invasion of Ukraine, no one gave the Ukrainians a chance. I mean, we were still remembering the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, where the elected president, who was also our guy, fled in the middle of the night with bags full of cash. Anyway, finally, there's Iran. Now, it's not a superpower, but it's certainly a regional power. And it's long accustomed to playing kind of a spoiler on the international stage. But despite the sanctions reimposed by the Trump administration in 2020, Iran looked poised to make a comeback in the first year of that pandemic. Joe Biden, of course, campaigned on restoring the nuclear deal that Trump had withdrawn from. And if Biden's policy would succeed, despite that there were the beginnings of some of these protests there, Iran would reap a financial windfall from these relaxed sanctions and unfrozen assets abroad. And there's a very good chance that Biden's policy of pursuing that nuclear deal in 2021 would stabilize Iran's morbid economy. Well, it is now 2023, and the lesson of the past year has been these dictatorships that looked like they were weathering the storm pretty well are in fact quite fragile. Don't you know, talking about a revolution sounds... Don't you know talking about a revolution? A year into Russia's war on Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin has had to send conscripts, mercenaries to the front. That's because his army was routed. And the Europeans have yet to back off the international sanctions that they supported almost a year ago, or for that matter, their own reinvestment in their national defense and the alternative of nuclear power. All good signs. Russia's military feared in the last 10 years, at least, as a kind of ruthless and cunning foe that had revolutionized what's known as hybrid warfare, it's kind of been exposed. It's a Potemkin military, at least when it comes to Ukraine. They haven't been able to get their supply routes straightened out. There was clear, almost a generation of corruption that was exposed by this war in the Russian army and the Russian military. It's not great for the Russians right now, and that is a good sign. Finally, there is China. The cruelty of its zero-COVID policy, where state apparats weld the doors of apartment buildings and cities have enforced these draconian measures to keep people off of the streets, it's finally run into some popular resistance. And that is itself extraordinary in a country that routinely arrests and disappears its internal critics. Chinese protesters have taken enormous risks and shown great bravery to voice their disgust at the leadership of Xi Jinping and at least... In a minor sense, it appears to have worked. We learned in the last week that China is now relaxing that zero COVID policy. And then, of course, there is also Iran. If there's one thing that Iranians will remember from 2022, it's this. Massive popular protests erupting following the death of Mahsa Amin, a 22-year-old Kurdish woman, while being detained by the regime's morality police over how she wore her hijab. The demonstrations, dubbed the anti-hijab protests, took aim at the regime's underbelly, its stifling religious laws. Not only did the protests persist, they spread like wildfire across the Islamic Republic to all its 31 provinces. Now, we've explained on previous episodes of the re-education, the revolution in Iran is a long time coming. I mean, since 1999, when students at Tehran University shut down the campus, to protest the closing of newspapers and the failure of then-President Mohammad Khatami to get his reforms approved by the unelected Guardian Council, Iran has seen waves of popular discontent stomped out again and again by a regime willing to kill unarmed demonstrators 
in the streets and to jail journalists, lawyers, and union organizers. You know, for my guest, Mariam Memar Sadehi, and myself, we have known that Iran's regime was despised and opposed by millions of its subject for years. But the tunnel in Iran has also produced some recent conversions right here in America. It's hard to say. I mean, certainly the elections that came out of Iran immediately after uh, the president uh, removed uh, the United States from the deal uh, has made life in Iran far, far worse. But that said, I think that what we're seeing in Iran was it was inevitable. I mean, yes, this has been primarily a feminist uprising. And yes, as you rightly note, that this was a, a movement that began with the murder of Masa Jinnah um, Amini. But that said, the reason why it has managed to get so many other swaths of the Iranian population in conservative areas and more rural areas, as you rightly said, teachers are now joining this protest, business groups are joining this protest, conservatives, even very sort of pious individuals who in the past, d during other uprisings, have kind of come to the... Uh, come to the sort of, you know, uh, uh, pr protection, if you will, the defense of the regime, even they are joining this uprising. And when you see a coalition like that, Ali, uh, one thing that you can sort of guarantee is that whatever comes out of this revolution, the Iranian regime is not going to be what we see today. That was Reza Aslan. He is an Iranian-American author and a professor who for years was an advocate for U.S. rapprochement with Iran. He worked closely with the National Iranian American Council, where he is an advisor, a group that primarily, until very recently at least, has supported the Iran nuclear deal and supported the idea that the U.S. should be lifting sanctions and engaging with Iran's corrupt regime, so hated by the people there today. And as we know, that deal that Reza Aslan and Nayak and many others had supported, it, well, it would have enriched the regime in exchange for temporary promises regarding its nuclear program. Well... Here's Reza Aslan from 2007 in a Blogging Heads video with yours truly. But the point is, is that the reform, is, the, the reform uh, principles that he put into place, as Rasenjani himself said during the last elections, are irreversible. There's no going back. Yes, there's going to be, you know, clampdowns occasionally. Every spring there's a clampdown in Iran about, you know, hijab. But it goes away. And the Iranians who live in Iran today are... Have, have a life that's vastly different than they did uh, before the, the reformation, uh, this movement towards reform. So, so again, the point is, is that we can talk about whether it was successful or not, but, but true change in Iran is going to come gradually and it's going to come from within. And it did do that. Now, I don't play these clips to dunk on poor Reza Aslan, but I did want to demonstrate just what a sea change has occurred among the Iranian-Americans and others who watch the country so closely. I suppose there are some suckers left who think that Khatami's reforms were lasting and not boiled, as Mr. Aslan told me way back when, but they are few and far between. And I imagine that must also be the case in Iran. In fact, I'm quite sure of it. Because today, people like Khatami, who promised a generation ago that the Islamic Republic was capable of reform, are despised almost as much as the corrupt thieves and terrorists that comprise today's regime elites. And that is a cause, in my view, for great hope. Now, nothing is guaranteed in any of these countries, Iran, China, or Russia. But the blunders of their tyrants is a reminder of their fragility. And my hope is that 2023 will be the year that these regimes melt away when faced with the defiance and fury of the people they purport to rule.
sun And this will be our year Took a long time to come Don't let go of my hand now The darkness has gone This will be our year Took a long time to come And I won't forget The way you helped me up when I was done And I won't forget The way you said Darling, I love you You gave me faith to go on Now we're there And we've only just begun This will be our year Took a long time to come Well, the re-education right now is so fortunate to have my good friend, Mariam Memar Sadegi, the founder and director of the Cyrus Forum, which is one of these great groups that's planning for an Iran after the fall of the current tyranny. So, Mariam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Eli, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a huge fan of the re-education. Oh, well, that means so much to me. Thank you so much for saying that. Well, I want to start by looking at where are we? We are four months in, you could say, or a little more than four months into what appears to be the most sustained uprising we've seen in Iran, maybe since, you know, the, the revolution, depending on how you count it. And at this point, what would you say as the story gets a little bit faded from some of the national headlines, but is still nonetheless is a very much of a real concern? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I think, fair to compare it to the war in Ukraine. It's not always going to be front and center in the minds of the American people or people around the world, but it's a revolution that we're in the middle of. It's something that may take time. There's It's going to ebb and flow in terms of the level of mobilization, the level of protests, the level of strikes, but there's been a fundamental shift in the consciousness of the Iranian people. And it's most definitely towards regime change. Now, what would you say to sort of a skeptical observer who might say, you know, we've seen these uprisings before. There was the Green Movement in 2009. There were fairly serious intermittent protests during the Trump years. There was, of course, the uprising in 1999 at Tehran University. Why is this different? Yeah, one of the reasons I appreciate being on with you, Eli, is because you've been following Iran's democratic aspirations, the different iterations of protests for a long, long time. You and I have been friends since about 2005, I think. What's very different now is it's not just the level or the quantitative amount of protests and how, how well they're being sustained and how well they're being matched by a diaspora mobilization and support from the international community writ large. I mean, people from J.K. Rowling to Jessica Chastain to rappers to all kinds of people from all kinds of worldviews across the globe are recognizing that this is this is a movement that deserves deserves their support. The fundamental difference is that the people inside the country have made a clean break from the totality of the regime. So starting in late 2017, 2018, a slogan emerged by the protesters, which means 
hardliners and reformists, the game is over. And this is extremely significant as compared to all other protests, particularly the Green Movement, which was led by regime insiders, Musabi and Karubi, because the people on the streets since late 2017 are, in my view, more angry than the reform- at the reformists than they are the hardliners. And they're seeing that the, the totality of the regime is at fault and there's no prospect for freedom or financial economic well-being so long as the regime rules. The level of corruption by the regime and the, the children of regime insiders is something that isn't talked about enough in my view. I think it's something that even though the, the, the main slogan of the revolution is woman life freedom, it's a very much a woman-led movement, it's very much about liberal values and personal freedoms and an eagerness to join modernity, there's also some very basic issues of hey, I have a master's degree and I can't afford to feed my family. Mm -hmm. And there's no distinction really between the people who are, quote unquote, the poor who are out on the streets because, and we saw that in earlier, late 2017, 18 and 19, of course, when there was a massacre of of protesters, over 1,500 killed in just three days. It It was more about high prices and a fury over the corruption and Mm. economic mismanagement of the regime. But all of that is still very much alive. It's not as though since then the regime got better at giving people their, you know, economic needs. But, you know, you're making an interesting point, which is that for many years, and this is true of other authoritarian countries, there's a bargain. You get less political freedom. You will you will be monitored online. You will be censored some of the things that we take for granted in the, you know, sort of liberal small L West will maybe not be there, but we will give you a sense of stability and security. And you will have a chance for a level of economic prosperity. It's certainly a model the Chinese have pursued. It's certainly a bargain that Vladimir Putin has tried to kind of have with his own Russian people, which is like, you may not get all the freedoms of the West, but it's going to be better than the chaos that would ensue if I was to embrace these kinds of values or this style of governance. So it's interesting that we're sort of seeing the failure of the regime to even provide that baseline that would have that kind of kept the population in line for many years, at least the majority of it. And they can't even do that at this point. Well, I think in this sense, uh, the the regime in Iran is very much like a Cuba or Venezuela. I mean, comes in through with a a revolution in, in the name of the poor, the Mustazafin in the case of Iran. And right from the get-go, you know, it's not as though these these it, it's not just a matter of the internal contradictions eventually being too much. It's like it's the the level of repression was so high in the beginning that the the failure of the the, the structural inability of the regime to to create good economic conditions for any any part of society. Is only now being is only now being voiced, and the the irony is that the people who are most furious at the regime are those in whose name the revolution was waged. You know, the 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 working poor, people having to 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 work two three jobs and still not able to feed their families. So in that sense, it's it's late Soviet Union kind of problem that the regime has, and that 
it doesn't have any base of support other than the regime itself. You know, it doesn't have anyone in society that's supporting it other than the people who are directly working for the regime. I want to ask you a question about, oftentimes we sort of said the freedom movement in Iran is leaderless, meaning that we haven't found an identifiable figure. Sometimes people would like to say that Reza Pahlavi, is, who, who does not live in Iran, is a kind of de facto leader. There are some who I think totally incorrectly will say that Mariam Rajavi of the MEK is the real leader. That's There's no evidence of that. I want to make that very clear. But it is true that we don't really know the names of people who are leading this rebellion. And maybe mm-hmm. you can talk about why that is and what mm-hmm. it means. Yeah, great question. There is not enough attention to the dissidents inside the country, even by Iranian activists outside the country, in my view. People like Majid Tavakoli, who is extremely principled and courageous theorist about the the nonviolent principles. He's regularly, for example, engaged with ideas from Hannah Arendt or other other folks, other other thinkers who have really been the backbone of Think Boslav Havel, dissidents in Eastern Europe, but is always making his ideas, his writings relevant to the here and now of Iran. Or Hossein Ronaqi, who's a very courageous writer and activist who even wrote on the pages of the Wall Street Journal about the regime's lobby abroad. Or a woman named Atena Emi, who spent many years in prison because she was against the the regime's war in Syria and against the death penalty, the executions in Iran and for children's rights. These people are not getting anywhere near the amount of attention and respect that they should get, again, even from Iranian activists outside the country. The, to the question of leadership, it is very much a case of if there was leadership inside the country that was overt towards the, you know, about the movement, about the protests, then it would either be a a Boris Nemtsov kind of a situation that person would be killed or an Alexei Navalny situation that person would be in prison. Right. So, yes, we are we are left talking about people outside the country. And, you know, in many ways, Iran is very fortunate because there are many good activists who are from different walks of life. So we have uh, actors, athletes, uh, scholars, business people, all different kinds of Iranians in the diaspora who are doing what they can to represent or amplify the aspirations of the Iranian people. But what's really most important is the, are those people inside the country who have paid a very, very high price and who sustain the hopes of the people. Of course, a lot of them are the parents of victims of the regime. And people like Gohara Ishqi, whose, whose son, Satora Behishti, was tortured to death for writing against Khamenei. She is just such an uplifting human being. She's elderly. She's from a traditional background, but she is constantly on the right side of, of all the issues and inspires people. Or Fatima Seperi, again, also a religious person. She's in prison right now, along with her brother. Very much clear that the entirety of the regime has to go. And again, very outspoken against the supreme leader, always mentioning him by name. So I think people are 
particularly inside the country, are very clear about the, the kind of sacrifices that these kinds of people are. Manu Bakhtiari, who was in prison because his son Puya Bakhtiari was killed as part, as part of the 2019 massacre. These people are really beloved. They're really respected, but they can't be seen and heard in the way that a diaspora Iranians are seen and heard. But of course, when there is a change, when there is an opening, it's the people of Iran inside the country right. who, will lead, who will lead their country. I want to get to something that is more diaspora, but it involves the revolution. And that is, if you watch the statements of NIAC, the, the National Iranian American Council, which traditionally has been a lobby for relaxing American sanctions on Iran and for supporting the Iran nuclear deal. But if you watch and you just look at what their statements have been since September, they have embraced what appears to be a kind of regime change position, at least to some extent. And I would point to someone like Reza Aslan, who is very much associated with NIAC as a you know, as a, as a writer and professor in California, uh, an Iranian-American. You know, I've known him for almost 20 years, and he's somebody who for many years was a sort of, you know, outspoken voice against, you know, neocons starting a war with Iran and was not really paying much attention to the struggles of for liberal democracy in the country. If you look at him now, he is calling for regime change. So I guess I kind of have a question. It's It's, you know... I know there's a lot of bitter enmity within the Iranian-American community, especially towards some of these folks who spoke in the name of Iranian-Americans and Iran's diaspora to say that they actually supported these policies which would have enriched the regime. And I know there's a lot of bitterness there, and I sort of, to a certain extent agree with a lot of that. But can, can the people like you have been there for so many years, you know, from the beginning, take yes for an answer? Which is to say, right now at least, it looks like Everyone is on the same page, even these groups of Iranian Americans, which used to have a very bitter debate over what U.S. policy ought to be towards the home country. Well, I guess I would say that if it was an honest debate and they came around to accept a different position and they were also honest about how their own past facilitated and whitewashed the repression of the regime, then then I think more people would be willing to see that it's that it's sincere. Believe, yeah, that it's sincere. Right. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, there's I'm, no I'm, way I'm... to know if tomorrow, you know. I mean, even 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 yeah. I mean, Aslan, for example, just recently, I think just a few days ago, he he had an interview where he was talking about he was he was drawing moral equivalence between the Shah and the current regime. And, you know, it's things like that, the, the muddying of the waters that makes whatever statement they have about the current revolution really kind of unbelievable, you know. So and also, Eli, we have bigger fish to fry than to be thinking about whether Nyack is, is, is going the right way or not right now. You know, I'm OK with maybe not talking about Nyack so much right now, but I'm not OK with believing them. I mean, these are people who spent years and this is not a this is not a self-centered sort of vendetta or anything like that. But people like me took years of abuse from these people. And there's never For been sure. never been an apology or a recognition that you can't say that you're on on the, the side of the revolutionaries. And then you have a you have a, a long history of attacking every dissident. And 
as importantly, if not more, that they have opposed any kind of U.S. assistance, any kind of U.S. solidarity with the people of Iran whenever they go out onto the streets. I mean, years ago, 2009, I was on a NPR debate with Reza Aslan, and he was basically saying in that debate how I'm, you know, dead wrong because I was calling for Obama not to be silent and to get on get on the side of the Iranian people. So they, they have too long of a history of being apologists for the regime for for people to all of a sudden now take them seriously. You know, that's a totally fair point. I get it. I would just push back in the following sense. I about priorities and like we don't really have time right now. And I understand that there are more pressing priorities for Iranian Americans who want to you know, who want to to act in solidarity with, you know, their, you know, cousins that are struggling for freedom. I get it. But if you are in a kind of fight, does this not present, at least from the perspective of, you know, lobbying the Biden administration or lobbying the European Union, if you want to sort of take it larger, because there's a sister organization of NIAC, I think that's, you know, in Europe and stuff, too, that kind of has a similar agenda. And say, okay, you know, we can hash out how wrong you were for so many years at another time. But for now, here's a joint letter from NIAC, Paella, our friend Cameron's organization, you know what I'm saying? Cyrus mm-hmm. Forum, all of these organizations which represent a wide range of views within the Iranian American community that would like to see the following three things from the Biden administration to assist the revolution in Iran. I mean, I. I say this as an outsider. It is not for me. I am not in any leadership role. I am just a journalist and a podcaster and everything like that. But I put it to you, because we've known each other for so long, that if you've got your longtime adversaries basically copying your talking points, is there not an opportunity in that alone? Well, it's a victory for sure. That's our victory. Yeah, That's our victory. Whether it helps to write a letter to Obama I'm no. sorry, well, I mean, had to Biden. <laughs> well, actually, I think I've, I've written this now. I wrote two columns uh, mm-hmm. in the last 10 years saying after the Iran deal, mm-hmm. Obama should be in his ex-presidency, in his retirement, a voice for the Iranian people. He never did it, unfortunately. But He did um, say he made a mistake, but even when he said he made a mistake, no, know. You know, I'm it sure you saw that video. It was sort of like it was sort of like when you cut your vegetables and you didn't get them quite right. Like the significance of the message the, of the mistake just didn't seem like it was very, you know, it, it, right. and also people in the region. I mean, this is the JCPOA was a mistake that resulted in hundreds of thousands of uh, JCPOA is the Iran nuclear deal just for our listeners. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Syrian people, hundreds of thousands of Syrians were killed, in my view, directly as a result of Obama trying to insist that his JCPOA was was a good thing. He didn't enforce his own red line because he was afraid that he would sacrifice this new whatever understanding with Iran's regime. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my view of that, I think. Listen, totally fair. And, you know, I get why it's important to have an an accurate historical record. And of course, I am kind of, you know, very much more on your side on this than the Nayak people who don't like me and have attacked me many times as well. Mm -hmm. I just mentioned it because it struck me as something that with this time, it's really different. You know, there's all there was always an effort from Nayak to try to say, you know, we care about this human rights person and this dissidents. And they always were somewhat sheepish and ashamed about it. But they participated in the same snow job about how the 
Iran nuclear deal was going to actually be very good for human rights in Iran and the democratic movement. And it was all nonsense. So, you know, shame on them for that. But I would just say, and also, I mean, it's significant that the founder of NIAC, someone named Trita Parsi, is no longer there. He is now at something called the Quincy Institute, which is on the wrong side of history in just about every struggle for freedom across Mm -hmm. the world, from China to Russia to Iran. Wherever you go, you will find the Quincy Institute voicing, putting up, you know, making sure to stick up for the little man, the dictator. So that's who they, that's, that's their style. And, you know, I just think that, you know, my, this is an assumption, I haven't reported this out. I think that, you know, Nyack has to have some sense of like what their actual membership is saying. And I think their (laughs) actual membership is saying, (laughs) you know, I'm I'm not talking about the leadership of the organization. I'm talking about like Iranian Americans are like, this is a disgrace that they would kill this woman for not wearing her hijab properly and then cover it up. And we're so sick of the lies. We're sick of the Mm -hmm. murders. We're sick of Mm -hmm. the disappearances. We're sick of the crackdowns. We're sick of the poverty. We're sick of the misery. And it's very natural that they would say it's not sustainable to keep saying that the one thing our community should fight against is how, you know, neoconservatives want to start a war with Iran as if the Iranians, the regime has not been at war with the rest of us forever, you know. Very well said. Very well said. I think part of the issue is that, you know, in, in the Persian language, Nayak has become, Nayaki has become a catch-all for all different kinds of people and institutions from the New York Times to Princeton University to, sure. Berlin you know, now with like that, Oberlin. Yeah, yeah right, and, right. And so it's a catch-all term for all of the ways that the regime has managed to infiltrate American institutions and to shape a very much a, a disinformation narrative about even what even when people are out on the streets. Do, do so so it's it's not just that the it's really become very sophisticated. I mean, the regime is not good at anything, but it is pretty good at manipulating and and using the fissures that are within or the the divisions that are within the diaspora making them seem much 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 bigger and more meaningful than they actually are and yeah i mean creating a sense that 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 revolution in a non-violent democratic manner is really out of reach and I think we're kind of in the middle of what you're talking about, of, of seeing whether people who have very historically sort of opposed those of us who have said that, look, the longer it takes to achieve a democratic overthrow of this regime, the longer the people suffer. There's no other way. So the sooner that we get to that end point, the better. Well, we're in the middle of it. Let's let's see. But it, it it's not going to be a smooth ride because you know, these people are basically an extension of the regime's foreign ministry, particularly Javad Azarif. And so they may not, you know, they, 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 they don't personally themselves kill people. But in the eyes of many Iranians, particularly those who have personally lost loved ones, there's really a, the, the distinction between those who actually carry out the killing and those who whitewash it for a Western audience is really not a significant difference. Well, that's very well said. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation, because I think it's important to get the perspective on this. I want to move on to what 
can the Biden administration, what can Western governments do that they are not doing right now? What would be your sort of what would you like to see at this point? The most important thing, Eli, is mm-hmm. not the sanctions or X policy or that technology or or that press statement. The right. most important thing is for the Biden administration to be honest with itself and with the American people and the international community that this regime is not viable and that the people on the streets are not asking for their rights from the regime. Yes. They are struggling to remove the regime. That's a fundamental difference. And if the re- if the administration, if the Biden administration starts with that premise that the regime has to go, that there's no way to U.S. security interests as long as the regime exists. There's no way to achieve some kind of a nuclear deal that is actually something that the regime will abide by. Then we can have a decent policymaking. And I think we can have a bipartisan consensus on those kinds of policies. And Biden can actually pursue something that might actually make him more popular in America. But the thing is that so long as the administration thinks that Going back to the negotiating table with the regime is something that is is worthwhile. It's really just it's got the basics wrong. It's 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 fooling itself because, first of all, what's contained the nuclear program so far is not anything that happened at the negotiating table. It's actually the opposite, because through the negotiations, the regime managed to secure huge amounts of money for itself, a lot of it in cash. What has kept the the nuclear program in check, and you've talked about this, is basically the actions of the Israeli state. I mean, the es- espionage and making open what the 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 blueprints sabotage. and the plans. The, yeah, yep, the sabotage, the assassinations, the cyber attacks, the 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 con the the, the plants within the regime that have significantly deepened fissures and distrust within the ruling ranks. These are the things that have kept that nuclear program in check so far, contained it so far. It's a myth that the, the, that the U.S. government is feeding itself, that it's whatever that the U.S. has done at the negotiating table that has proven effective. And I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, is it careers? Is it egos? What is it that keeps people like Rob Malley thinking that they're actually making a difference? If anything, they're just... I mean, the the regime is really laughing at this administration when it comes to... Well, I mean, the arguments that they would make, and I'm not endorsing it, would be simply that the alternative of Iran getting a nuclear weapon is so horrific and that the best way to prevent them is to lock them into a deal like this. I don't think that that is true, but that's what they think, and they kind of continue to repeat it. Now, I would say that you know, Mally's view on this, I mean, I think that there are others in the administration right now that are beginning to sort of see the futility of it. And there's so many obstacles. But I like how you were, it was a very kind of, you cut through a lot of dross in your answer, which I really liked. What you say, what you're saying is it starts with an understanding of the problem and a, and a revolution in how America understands the Iran problem, which is not to lock them into agreements that they'll violate down the road or that are so weak and generous to to the regime 
that they're almost not worth signing in the first place. Mm -hmm. What is necessary is something exactly. different. What is necessary is the I is 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 what you said, which is that the problem is the regime. Our allies are on the ground risking their lives in these protests. And that if we can coordinate these kinds of inside and outside, then that is the best route. And I also agree with you in that I think that we that's that sanctions are designed to pressure the regime into concessions at a bargaining table to negotiate. So the sanctions are part of a strategy that ultimately keeps the regime in place. And I think that that right there is another flaw in the strategy. So, you know, buy, buy time on the nuclear clock through sabotage. And there's more, I think, that the U.S. can do in cooperation with the Israelis on that. And then, you know, do what we can to, I would say, you know, really support in the background the, 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 the revolutionary movement because we don't want to get in a situation where, you know, State Department bureaucrats or people at the CIA or whoever see themselves as the true leaders of this movement, which is not what we want. We are, this is not a, an effort as a kind of proxy war or something like that. This is a, an indigenous organic movement in Iran. It has support from all strata of society, it has support from, you know, Persians. It has support from other ethnic minorities in Iran, from the Awazi Arabs to the Iranian Kurds. This is about their movement and they are very far along and ultimately their success. And we always think lose sight of this, Mariam, is the success depends on some of those children of the regime officials who have been benefiting, turning on their parents mm -hmm. and saying enough yeah, is enough. Absolutely. I can't in good conscience as a 23 year old support, you know, the further debasement and infantilization of my people. So in that respect, I do feel like it's not like it's we just sort of flip a switch yes. and saying, OK, the yes. revolution's on autopilot. There is a lot of stuff I think the United States can do in terms of internationally isolating Iran and other things like that. And also in terms of, you know, material support when in, and, and having diplomacy. You know, I wrote this column in the beginning of this round of, of uprisings, which is that I would like to see the Biden administration appoint a special envoy to the revolution. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. All right, really quick, Mariam. I want to get to the Cyrus Forum and the work the Cyrus Forum is doing, because in many ways, this is so important. All the talent that the, the, there was, there's been a brain drain in Iran since 1979. All that talent to try to bring it together and plan for the future of a, of a post-Islamic Republic Iran yes. is just such important work. So tell me a little bit about what the forum is doing now and how you look at that sort of planning for the the post-regime Iran. Great. Just real quick, for people who, who might not know, I, I co-founded and co-directed another organization called Tavana, which is now a household brand throughout Iran, focused on civic education and civil society capacity building. And that work was, you know, in my eyes, around the time of the Green Movement, the most important thing that Iran needed. So a lot of classes on what is democracy, human rights, case studies on other countries' experiences with democratic transition, teaching about the Holocaust, teaching on children's rights, and then Tavana Tech providing Iranians with the, the technological means to access a free and safe internet, but also learning about digital literacy and technology more broadly. So Tavana and Tavana Tech really created a 
intellectual backbone and a, and a civic capacity for where we are currently. Now, Cyrus Forum, we created just a few weeks before the killing of this woman, Mahso Amini, and it is fo- its focus is very different. The focus is, as you said, getting the capacity and readiness, preparedness for what comes the day after regime overthrow or regime collapse. Because we've seen from other countries' experiences that even the most beautiful of nonviolent revolutions, if it's not followed by real capacity to deliver essential public services and a decent economy, if it's not ready to deliver transitional justice, if it's not ready to secure the nation's borders and to keep to keep law and order. Without that preparedness, the, the, the democratic transition itself is really at risk and people feeling like they have a future in their, in the country is at risk. So Cyrus Forum is all about that. And we have a really great set of advisors. And as I mentioned, we just got going and then this revolution erupted. So we are in the process of trying to secure funding for Cyrus Forum. Is Reza Pahlavi involved? He is not involved. Okay. All right. I actually think that's probably better. I'm nothing against Reza Pahlavi, but I do think that it's important that it isn't, you know, that this is not a project that is meant to be putting in a, an elite that takes power after the revolution or something like that. Where No, it's, it's about, you know, kind of getting people who know how to, you know, run the sewage system, you know, right? I mean, like, figure out how to repair the electrical grid. Make sure yes. the country doesn't actually physically collapse. And there is yes. so much talent from Iran that having a kind of, you know, just having a, 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 a home base where people can go and do that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is a valuable sort of thing. So true. How long do you think we're going to be in this period of the uprising and the tumult? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's impossible yeah. to predict, but what's it your sense impossible. of like what we're going to see in the future months? And Yeah, I mean, whenever... for, for, for 2023. I spoke at APAC a couple of days ago. They they had their very first political leadership conference. It's a leadership. It's a, it's 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 a, it's a new thing APAC is doing, not focused on policy per se, but on on political organizing. And you know, I I said to them, as I've said to to audiences inside Iran on Persian language TV and radio, we're in the middle of the revolution. And we may be just a day or two or months away, we don't know, away from a massive, massive mobilization on the streets. The right. reason the reason I think that is because every sector of the economy has gone on strike. Every kind of Iranian right. in every every town and city has already been out on the streets. There isn't a part of society, no matter how you do the 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 cutting of the, uh, the cross section of society that is not engaged in the revolution. It's just that can things get organized enough? And I think there's always an element of luck or an uh, an element sure. of the undefined, where all the people who have already been engaged once decide to become engaged simultaneously. So all those different sectors of the economy are on strike at the same time. And all the people who have ventured out on the streets at least once decide that they're going to come out on the streets at the same time. Then that's a that's a force that's going to be awfully hard for this regime to reckon with. And the thing is that 
yes, there's a high level of violence. By all means, I don't want to minimize that. The level of anguish and pain inside the country, Eli, is profoundly deep. However, in 2019, the regime killed over 1,500 people in three days. This time around, it has not done that type of violence. It's executing people and trying to leverage each execution for maximum impact in terms of fear in the hearts and minds of the Iranian people and testing the international community. And basically with every execution, showing the international community that Yes, you you impose some sanctions and you have some talk about human rights, but ultimately you keep coming back to, we're going to come back to the negotiating table with you. So the regime is really testing to see if the Biden administration, the European Union are going to say, Europeans, no more trade. We're pulling the ambassadors. The Biden administration saying there's there's no prospect for you to come back to any kind of negotiation over the nuclear issue. I think those things really are critical. Of course, the most important actor here is the Iranian people themselves. But the Iranian people also, when they see that signaling from the international community, it will give them enormous confidence that 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 the rest of the world is now truly behind them. That's a great point. And it's one I think it's a good it's a good point to sort of end the interview on. And I guess, you know, as you were saying it, I was thinking to myself, wouldn't it be something if some of the dissidents that you mentioned earlier in this conversation and other leaders who have credibility with this movement just put out a statement that said, unlike the current, you know, thieves and terrorists who run the country, we have no interest in a nuclear weapon. Mm. Negotiate a nuclear deal with us. You know, exactly. I mean, I, I just... You know, exactly. and, and start to like, you know, really Talibanize, if you will, the regime and like, start mm-hmm. questioning why they're why why the Iranian foreign ministry gets to choose who represents Iran in the United Nations, for example. I know these are mm-hmm. very radical ideas and I'm not saying that, you know, it's a pie in the sky. It or makes easy. perfect sense. It's really simple, actually. But we got to start know? putting it yeah. out there, you know. Yeah, yeah. All right. Mariam, thank you so much for enlightening my uh, our audience here today. And I really want to recommend everybody check out the Cyrus Forum. Check out Mariam's work when she writes for publications like Tablet. And definitely keep an eye on this revolution is not going away. Eli, I'm very grateful to you. Uh, grateful to you. Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.